welcome to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. So this episode, I want to go ahead and talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I want to talk a lot about this is because I really was thinking heavily about this. And I hear a lot of Christians who are talking about it, and I've heard a lot of atheists discussing this. And it clearly comes down to where atheists have been really challenging the gospel, and I feel a lot of Christians are also not looking very heavily at this. And it is, again, the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, the entire Christian faith hinges on the belief of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, you are completely in vain. I am completely in vain. Everything we talk about. In fact, this is quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, where he says, And if Christ has not risen, our preaching is useless, and so is, our, uh, so is your faith. And I can't agree more with him. If Jesus Christ never rose from the dead, then you you and me are following false idols. The atheist is correct. Christianity is bankrupt. And we are to be pitied amongst the highest amongst all people because we openly believe in a fraud and a lie. And there would be really no point to following the moral commandments. There would be really no God in which we worship. And therefore, good and evil would be whatever. You can go off and do whatever you want. The entire area of Christianity hinges upon this event in, in human history. If it never took place, then, again, everything's bankrupt. You have no reason to believe in it. So I went over to, I have the book called Cold Case Christianity by uh, Dr. J, oh, I'm sorry, J. Warner Wallace. And if you guys aren't aware of this, the whole notion of the book is a homicide detective investigates the claims of the gospel. First of all, if you guys have a chance to read it, it's a really easy read and it's full of great information. Uh, J. Warner Wallace was a very strong, very devout atheist until he uh, took his cult homicide detective, uh, cold case homicide detective skills and applied them to the gospel. He actually talked about in God's Not Dead 2 when he was put in, uh, when the scene was in the courtroom and he was defending the existence of Jesus Christ and the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, well, at the hands of the Romans. So I highly suggest go ahead and take a look at this book. It's full of great information. Now diving into it, I'm going to be reading off of this, but also kind of highlighting into it. Now, there's a lot of names in here uh, that are in from the Roman sources and from Jewish sources that I'll be honest here, I can't really pronounce. I butcher them like crazy. I'm not a full huge on scholar on these names. So you just don't, don't kill me. Don't crucify me. Oh, all puns intended. Um... No pun intended here. So just bear with me. So we're, originally, this is really what we find the information. This is the surface information we find. We, um, the first point is many first century and early second century uh, unfriendly robot sources, and I'm not going to refer to the names because I can't pronounce them, affirm and acknowledge that Jesus was crucified and died. Second point, the Roman guards faced death that they allowed the prisoners to survive the crucifixion. There are people who say that Jesus Christ never died on the cross. You can hear it from Islam, you can hear it from Jehovah's Witnesses, or whomever. There are also people who claim to be Christian who claim that Jesus Christ never died on the cross. There are many different sects that teach that. However, when we look at the evidence of the Roman guards, and of course the policies the Roman Empire had, we find that that would not be allowed. That they, again, the guards would face death if they allowed a prisoner to survive crucifixion. So then the question you have to ask yourself is, would they really be careless enough to remove a living person from a cross? Yet, it really boils down to a logical question of, if you don't care about the person, you don't have any interest in the person, your job is just to kill people, that's just what it is in general. Why would you put yourself at mortal peril with your own government and your own policies 
your own life or your own family at risk by letting somebody live on the cross. It, it wouldn't make any rational sense to do so. Third point, Jesus would have to control his blood loss from his from his beatings, crucifixion, stabbing in order to survive, yet, yet was pinned to the cross and unable to do anything that might achieve this. So, like, if it was, like, you know, when someone gets shot or they get stabbed, and you see, like, in the movies where they put a tourniquet on and they even teach on this, you, you pull the tourniquet hard or you push on the wound really hard to stop and relieve the, um, control the bleeding and keep it from, you from bleeding out to death. He didn't have that option being nailed to a cross. He didn't have the ability to put a tourniquet on or anything. I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory at that point. I think anyone who's uh, seen Crucifixion by watching it on, on um, a movie or has seen the medical thing, or just really anyone who's seen, gone into a church and seen Jesus being nailed to a cross and the description on basically a statue or on a necklace or whatnot, you can tell that it's, again, this is common sense. You, can, you wouldn't be able to reach down and go, let's put a tourniquet around my leg because I'm gushing blood out, or any of those necessary areas. You have no control over that. Now, number four, Jesus display, um, displayed wounds following the resurrection, but was never observed to be uh, to behave as though he was wounded. In spite of the fact he appeared only if, uh, only days after his beatings and crucifixion stabbing, his wounds were not really fully shown. Yes, he had the hole in his side, he had the hole in his hands, but apart from that, that there wasn't much. At least that's what we were looking at in the gospel. It was never observed to to behave like he was wounded in that fact. So, I mean, he's only, he's dead for three days. That's not even close to possible to have anything heal that quickly. Number five, Jesus disappeared from the historical records following his reported resurrection and ascension and was never cited again, as one might expect if he recovered from his wounds and lived much beyond his young, young age of 33. So, because there are Christians out there who have actually talked about this and said, well, Jesus survived, you know, the crucifixion, he was buried, but you know what, he lived, he survived his wounds, no one saw him again, no record of him, he was extremely popular, extremely well known, it's like a politician trying to hide, or a celebrity trying to hide, who is extremely famous, it's like trying to have Johnny Depp hide, or try to have Donald Trump hide, or any of those things, it's just not going to happen, too many people, there's no way that they could... There's no way that they could have just disappeared like that. Now, here's one of the big parts. The disciples lied about the resurrection. The some non-Christian claims that the disciples stole the body from the, uh, from the grave and later fabricated the stories of Jesus' resurrection appearances. Now, there are problems. While this ex explanation account for the empty tomb, accounts for the empty tomb and the resurrection um, observers, it fails to account for the transformed lives of the apostles. People were completely transformed by who Jesus Christ was. So here's a big problem with this. One, the Jewish authorities took many precautions to make sure the tomb was guarded and sealed, knowing that the removal of the body would allow disciples to claim Jesus had risen. If you want to look this up, it's found in Matthew chapter 27, verse 62 through 63. So... When I read that, and I think what you guys really should read, is the extreme extent up to even placing guards in front of the tomb. You know, Roman guards in front of this tomb to protect it, to stop anyone from doing that. They wanted to make sure he wasn't just martyred and people would just, you know, be drawn in that sense. Two, the people, the people local to the event would have known it was a lie. 
Remember that Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 8, that there were still 500 people who could testify on having seen Jesus alive after his resurrection. This is massive. Absolutely massive. You have over 500 people who have seen the risen Jesus Christ, all attesting that they saw it. And when I look further into this in the Jewish sources, these, these people who are Romans, Jews, uh, Gentiles, they all they didn't all like Jesus. They weren't all big fans of Jesus. Some loved him, some hated him, some were really indifferent. But they were all claiming the same thing, to see that Jesus Christ had risen. Number three, the disciples lacked the motive to create such a lie. So the reason this is also very important, that they lacked a reason to lie, motive, is because they faced enormous amounts of persecution. They were being, followers of Jesus were being killed. In fact, you read about this in the first beginning of the early church in the book of Acts, where you come across where Saul of Tarsus would go around and he was murdering Christians. Followers of the way is what they call themselves. Christians weren't used until, the name was until later on, that, were, that was meant to be a slur against followers of Jesus Christ to call them little Christs. That's what Christian was meant for. So followers of the way, as they were called originally, were being persecuted, hunted down, and murdered viciously by Saul of Tarsus, viciously by the Roman authorities, um, and by the Jewish authorities. So there was immense amounts of persecution. There was no rational explanation of why they would want to even create a story, especially if they there was no there was no gain for it. They weren't going to gain political favor. They weren't going to gain power whatsoever. They weren't going to get rich off of this. They literally had nothing to gain off the resurrection and telling a lie throughout this entire process. Number four, the disciples' transformation following the alleged resurrection is inconsistent with the claim that the appearances were only a lie. How could their own lies transform them into courageous evangelists? And when we read in the Bible, we come across where Jesus, where the Holy Spirit transforms our lives. That when people have encounters with God, with the Lord Jesus Christ, that their lives are completely transformed. In fact, we have a term for it in Christianese. It's called being born again. Where you've repented, turned away from your sin, and that you've accepted Jesus Christ into your heart, and your life is completely transformed. You no longer want to live for the old ways. Now, if this was a lie, this how could you possibly tell yourself a lie that many times and be able to transform to the point of being able to be martyred and be an evangelist for that sense? It makes no rational sense whatsoever. So, I think J. Warner Wallace makes a very strong case for this in point. Here's the next one. The disciples were delusional. Some skeptics believe the disciples, as a result of their intense grief and sorrow, only imagined seeing Jesus alive after his death on the cross. The critics claim that the appearances were simply hallucinations that resulted from wishful thinking. I've heard this one before. Now, here are the main. Here's some of the, one of the biggest problems. This proposal fails to explain the empty tomb and only accounts for the resurrection experience at first glance. As a detective, I frequently encountered witnesses who were related in some way to the victim in my case. So people, so a lot of people will say this who are non-Christian will say, well, you know, it was just, they, they were so grieved by this, they were so horribly grieved that, oh my goodness, they just imagined that they had returned, he had returned. There's only one particular issue with this, and that is what J. Warner Wallace talks about by the empty tomb in here. So here's the first point. While individuals have hallucinated, there's no examples of large groups of people who have uh, the exact same hallucination. 
In fact, when I was reading about this in uh, Lee Strobel's book, uh, what was it, um, The Case for Christ, he actually went to a PhD psychologist and actually asked her straight up, you know, 500 people, can't they all hallucinate the same thing? And she said, no, that's feasibly impossible. It that cannot happen. And I'll cover that more in Lee Strobel's book, um, The Case for Christ. But ultimately, one person can hallucinate something. Two people hallucinating the exact same thing is extremely unlikely, but has known to happen. Three people, you're more likely, you're more likely to run into a unicorn than you are to actually encounter three people who hallucinate the exact same thing. As for 500 people hallucinating the exact same thing, no. There is no examples, there is no evidence, there is no science to back that up. That is simply a, a hypothesis that is simply conspiracy. And I say conspiracy because there is no evidence for it whatsoever. Second point. While a short momentary group hallucination may seem reasonable, long sustained and detailed hallucinations are unsupported historically and intuitively unreasonable. So, someone might be able to hallucinate something, but they can't ever give exact, you know, graphic details about their hallucination. That's feasibly impossible. Another example would be, not all the disciples were inclined favorably towards such a hallucination. The disciples included people like Thomas, who were skeptical and did not accept Jesus to come back to life. And you actually find that in the gospel. And he said, hey, unless I can touch the, his, the wounds in his hands and touch his side, I don't believe that he risen from the dead. Which holds extreme amounts of credibility in my eyes because he, he was doubting Thomas. He doubted. He wasn't diehard. Fifth, if the resurrection was simply a hallucination, what became of Jesus' corpse? The absence of the body is unexplained, um, unexplained under this scenario. So even if they were supposed to hallucinate and been delusional, well... You still have to make up for the empty tomb. The body was gone. If they were delusional and they were just hallucinating something or making something up, it really isn't rocket science to figure out how to solve this problem. You just walk over to the darn tomb, you open, it, you roll back the stone, and you go, look, the body's right there. I mean, it would be a case so easily solved that you could probably even do it in your own darn sleep. But the simple point is, the body wasn't there. The evidence shows that the Romans didn't take it. Or didn't move out of the way. The, and that the body wasn't stolen. Jesus Christ was not alive and survived his crucifixion. So, again, the empty tomb. You gotta account for that one. The disciples were fooled by an imposter. Some non-believers have argued that an imposter tricked the disciples and convinced them what, that Jesus was still alive. The disciples then unknowingly advanced the lie. So that's, I remember when I read that, I was like, I hadn't really come across that one. But then, of course, when I talked to a few atheists who really wanted to dive into, like, trying to disprove the gospel and the resurrection to all extent, we're really diehard on this one. I remember hearing this on a, on a atheism on YouTube, and now looking at it, I go, this is ridiculous. Point one, the impersonator would have to be familiar enough with Jesus' man, mannerisms. And statements to convince the disciples. The disciples knew knew the topics of the con better than anyone who might con them. Second point: many of the disciples were skepticals and dis, dis, skeptical and displayed none of the necessary naivety that would be required 
for the con artist to succeed. Thomas, for example, was openly skeptical from the beginning. So they would walk in, oh yes, look at me, I'm the Messiah. Uh, let's put him to the test. They know the con better than the other guy, and they could easily point it out. Even Thomas would have called him out. The imposter would need to possess miraculous powers. The disciples reported that the resurrection of Jesus performed the resurrected Jesus performed many miracles and quote unquote convincing proofs. You find this in Acts chapter one, verse two to three. The next point: Who would seek to start a world religion movement if not one of the hopeful disciples? This theory requires someone to be motivated to impersonate Jesus other than the disciples themselves. And the fifth point is, this explanation also falls fails to account for the empty tomb and missing body of Jesus. So, most of these that I come across, and I'm going to keep going through them, is really great theories. But ultimately, has it's like Swiss cheese. You got a lot of holes in it. And all of them fail to take into account the resurrection, the empty tomb. That's actually when I witness to a lot of people and they go and they say the exact same things. I simply tell them, you have to, you know, all these, you know, what you're saying, even though I could discredit a lot of them, I said, I decide not to really go through tons and tons and tons of stuff because I don't feel that they're really wanting to listen to that. So I simply go, what you have to do is you have to count for the empty tomb. That's what you have to do. The tomb is empty. So you can say the disciples stole it, you got to do that. You can say that they hallucinated, you can say all these different things. How come the tomb is empty? Here's the third point. The disciples were influenced by limited spiritual sightings. More recently, some skeptics have offered the theory that one or two of the disciples had a vision of the risen Christ and then convinced the others that these spiritual sightings were legitimate. The, they argue that additional sightings were simply came across, came as a response of intense influence of the first visions. Now, here's the problems with that. Number one, the theory fails to account for the numerous um, divergent and separate groups of sightings of Jesus that were recorded in the Gospels. These sightings are described specifically with great detail. It's not reasonable to believe that all of these disciples could pr provide such specified details if they were simply repeating something they didn't see for themselves. So if you heard something from somebody else and you're just talking about that, you can't give graphic detail about what is actually happening. In fact, the game of telephone kind of shows that. That's why it's very unreliable. So when we see this, it's these over 500 witnesses are giving graphic detail about the resurrection. Plays in the favor. Second point, as many as 500 people were said to be available to testify to their own observations of the risen Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 8, could all of these people have been influenced to imagine their own observations of Jesus? Now, it's not reasonable to believe that a persuader equally persuaded all these disciples, even though they didn't actually see anything that was recorded. And the third one is, this explanation still also fails to account for the empty tomb or the missing corpse. So you can start seeing a trend here that a lot of these conversations that people were having, a lot of these theories that people are kind of pulling out of the air to try to dismiss the resurrection, really fail to highlight the biggest problem, which is the body again is missing. The corpse is gone. 
The disciples' observations were distorted later. Some unbelievers claim that the original observations of the disciples were amplified and distorted as legends of Jesus grew over time. These skeptics believe that Jesus may have been a wise teacher, but argue the resurrection is a, is a legendary and historically late exaggeration. So here's some of the problems. First one is, in the early accounts of the disciples' activity after the crucifixion, they were seen citing the resurrection of Jesus as primary piece of evidence that Jesus was God. From the earliest days of the Christian movement, eyewitnesses were making this claim. So it's not reasonable to say whatsoever that later on the resurrection was made. Later on it was invented, like, like 200 years later the resurrection was made up. Because we had the earliest records are exactly that, as J. Warner Wallace is pointing out, into the gospel is you have people in the very first century, only like a, a couple of months after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and ascension into heaven, they were all claiming that he rose from the dead. They're all claiming that the resurrection had happened. So it's unreasonable to even suggest that it was not till 200 years later. It seems more like a internet atheist talking point rather than an actual legitimate evidentiary argument or rational argument, I should say. Uh, second point, the students of the disciples also recorded that the resurrection was key component in the disciples' eyewitness testimony. More, well, if you read the book, there's more on chapter 13 about this. It's really quite fascinating to read this book. The third point, the earliest known Christian creed or oral record, which was described by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, includes the resurrection as key component as a key component. Um, so we already see it again. Paul is quoting directly about the resurrection, as I was telling you in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm just reading it to you again. I'll read it out loud again to you. If Christ has not, has not been risen, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So right there, again, this is the creed. This is what needs to be done. Our whole faith is hinging on this. The fourth explanation, um, this explanation also fails to account for the fact that the tomb and the body of Jesus had not been exposed to demonstrate that this late legend was false. So here's the next one. The, the disciples were accurately reporting the resurrection of Jesus. Here it is. Christians, of course, claim that Jesus truly rose from the dead and the Gospels are accurate eyewitness accounts of this event. Number one, the explanation requires a belief in the supernatural, a belief that Jesus Christ had a supernatural power to rise from the dead in the first place. Now, when we look at these, and I really have dived into these a bit, I'm just kind of making a short little converse, um, conversation podcast about this, is when we're talking about why we believe what we believe in, regardless of what denomination you may associate with, regardless of where you might stand in your faith in Christ, when, when we roll boil it down, when we are skeptical, skeptical about the Gospels, as I am a skeptic, a natural-born skeptic, the resurrection is compelling because the evidence is overwhelming. Um, I remember reading on um, Lee Strobel about how there's more evidence outside of the Gospel for the resurrection of Jesus than there actually is inside. We can compile the entire resurrection 
from outside sources who didn't like Jesus, who had no sympathy towards Jesus or his disciples, did not care about Jesus. And yet they all recorded the exact same thing taking place. They all had different opinions. They had different perspectives on it. Some were like, yes, uh, someone, you know, I read one time in the Ro about from a Roman's perspective and, I, and it was just light about some information, but I was just kind of lightly reading about it, how one of the Roman officials, and I have to relook up the name because again, I butcher names like crazy, <laughs> was um, he was talking about how they couldn't find the body. They were claiming he rose from the dead. He double-checked it. This guy had been killed by crucifixion. That the official records showed that, that. That, you know, no one had any doubts that he was dead. The Roman guards knew he was dead. The Roman officials knew he was dead. The Roman governor of Judea knew he was dead. Everyone knew he was dead. He had, he had assumed room temperature as my dad would joke around. So... We know that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Another one would be that in the Bible it records that the, when the Roman soldier stabbed him in the side, watery serum mixed with clotted blood came out. We know for a fact in medical research that when, water is, when you die, your blood separates, your blood, your blood clotting, your, your cells separate from the plasma. That's what holds them and keeps it going, right? And that only happens when your heart stops beating and you're dead. So we know for a fact from that one piece of evidence in the gospel that is confirmed throughout in history by the Romans and the Jews that he was actually dead upon the cross. And again, going back through all this, I hope you can see that a lot of these issues over the faith of Jesus Christ, you may have heard these ones, you probably know, may know somebody, you may not have heard about them, but now you do. So in case the devil comes to you in sheep's skins, and there's somebody else who tries to convince you outside that the resurrection never happened, you can listen to this and understand that it did actually happen and learn a couple of things about how, well, the tomb was empty. There's only one that didn't require the tomb to be empty. But at the same time, all of them did. So if they said, well, there's mass hallucinations, you can point out, well, if there's hallucinations, all you got to do is just literally walk over to Jesus' tomb. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. All they had to do is roll back the stone. It's not like it was an impossible task. It wasn't like it was difficult to achieve. It wasn't like <laughs> it wasn't like it was hard. And simply roll it back, look inside, and go, look, the body's right there. Decaying. Smells a bit. But it's there. <clears throat> so, and also I'm not getting any promotional things by reading out this book to you. I'm not um I'm not getting promotions by Jay Warner Wallace or any of his associates or any of that matter for doing it. I just think Jay Warner Jay Warner Wallace's book called Cold Case Christianity is an absolute masterpiece. Just fantastic. It's an easy read. It's easy to understand and it can really help deepen your faith. So ultimately, I hope this has really helped you guys out. I'm going to look some more into this and create some more episodes for you guys. But until next time we meet again, oh, and also really fast, if you want to comment on this channel, leave a note, you love it, you hate it, whatever in between, share with your friends or family or whoever you kind of feel like doing. You can even have, listen to it with your dog or whatever. I don't really care. But share it around. Let people listen and, um, and, I, and really benefit you as well. I hope it becomes a blessing in your life. So until next time, we meet again and we talk. May God richly bless you, my dearly beloved.